Mr. Lambert. We're thinking seriously of sending you home. What do you think of the idea? Think of it? I can take care of my family again. Be with my wife and my children. Go back to work. Well, if, that is if I can find a job. Doctor, I'd be coming back to life again. I wasn't only sick when I came here. I, my mind was all fogged up. Since I've been here, you people have helped me to see and to feel myself again. I think I can see daylight ahead. That was quite an interesting clip there from an infomercial made in the United States in the 1950s about the inner workings of a mental health hospital. Yeah, I'm very surprised because I guess discussion around mental health were very much at the infancy back then. And I guess there wasn't a lot of awareness on the importance of uh, mental health. Yeah, I think you're right, Sam. It's no secret that people with mental health problems were for a very long time completely misunderstood and treated quite terribly. And thankfully, things are a lot better today. Society is a lot more sympathetic and there's much more effective treatment available. But I think the stigma sadly still exists. And that's why in this episode of Zwittering On, we're going to talk about brain chemistry. So let me introduce myself. Hello, everyone. I'm Mariama ifode Blees, and I'm the head of education at the Salters Company and Institute in London. And I'm Sam Yodada, or Sam, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge in the Department of Chemistry. Azwitarion is a molecule that has both positive and negative regions of charge. So in a solid state, amino acids exist as dipolar ions called Zwitterions, hence the name of our shows. So we kind of love a bit of a pun around here. So if that doesn't float your boat, I think you're listening to the wrong podcast. I'm guessing our listeners know a few things about chemistry and the sciences. But if not, be prepared for a lot of acronyms and abbreviations. We just can't get enough of them. Um, but we'll make sure to explain them as we go along so you can keep up with us. I get it. They do save time. And we know we're all busy people. And it helps others to learn. But often the biggest barrier to studying chemistry and science is being intimidated by all the complicated words and concepts or thinking you're not smart enough. But we and our guests are here to break it all down for you listeners at home. The world needs chemists more than ever. Brain chemistry. It's a big one this episode. I guess, you know, mental health in the UK is pretty much at an all-time low. You're right, Sam. We know that one in four people will experience mental health difficulties each year and one in six people report suffering from problems related to their mental health each week. Now, according to the charity Mind, people who identify as LGBTQ+, black people and young women are most at risk of developing mental health problems. I guess the clip at the beginning kind of shows it all. It doesn't really matter who you are, what your background is, Poor mental health can affect anyone. We know chemists can do everything. And in this episode, we'll be joined by two guests. A scientist at the top of their game on the subject who knows a lot more about it than us. And a student also on the subject who wants to learn how to address these issues. In every episode, we will do our best to introduce the main topic under discussion. 
I'm then passed over to an expert and a student to have a conversation about the past, present, and future of the science at the heart of it. And as tempting as it might be for the two of us to just sit and nod along, we'll be joining in with the conversation as well. We are going to be breaking things down for you so you can understand it. So at the risk of embarrassing ourselves, at the end of each episode, we are going to be quizzed by the experts on the key takeaway from the conversations in the expert test. The expert test. Yes, we will, Sam. And even though I really hated exams at school, we will be keeping score every week and throughout the whole series to see who out of the two of us will be the winner of the expert test. I feel like I have an edge this week because my PhD focuses on neurodegenerative diseases, which isn't directly related to brain chemistry, but has some links. I'm liking your confidence, Sam. Bring it on. It's on. It's important to say from the onset that the understanding of the fundamental chemistry of the brain and its various neurotransmitters is vital for the treatment of depression and anxiety, two of the most common mental health disorders. One of the main ways we treat these disorders is with antidepressants, drugs that ultimately aim to increase the concentration of serotonin and or noradrenaline in the brain, thus improving mood, sleep, appetite and quality of life. We'll be asking a series of questions along the way, such as, what does mental health mean? What causes problems with mental health? And what is depression and anxiety? And how can chemistry combat mental health problems? I regularly work with young people, or should I say younger people, as you're a bit of a spring chicken yourself, Sam. I don't feel like a spring chicken, I can assure you. <laughs> Teenagers today and younger are really grappling with these questions. Now, when I was studying, no one was talking about it despite what the clip from the 1950s might suggest. You weren't at uni then? No, Sam, I was not. I was at uni about 20 years ago, but even 20 years ago, no one was talking about it. It just wasn't the topic that you, you mentioned. And arguably, it's tougher now to be a young person. But I have to say that being a black woman in not particularly diverse spaces, I had a lot of interesting situations, shall we say. Um context I had to navigate and I can see the impact it had on my well-being over the years. So understanding brain chemistry in the context of mental health, I think that's something that's really vital for our future. We are absolutely delighted uh, to be joined today by Professor Sarah-Jane Blakemore, who is a Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. Sarah-Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sarah-Jane is also the leader of the Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience Group, whose research focuses on the development of social cognition and decision-making in the human adolescent brain and adolescent mental health. We're also joined by William Terry Wright, who is a PhD student at the University of Bristol studying chemical synthesis. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's great to meet everyone and I look forward to getting started. It's lovely to have you here with us, Will. Yeah, just a quick question for you, Will and Sarah-Jane. Um, who is your inspirational scientist? I guess my the inspirational scientist at the moment is someone called Andre Isaacs, who's uh, in the US, and he makes really fun videos in the lab 
and uh, dances and TikToks and yeah, oh, he, he makes the lab. Yeah, he makes Is the, the lab. Is the one that wears the colourful yes. lab coat? Yeah, oh, he amazing. makes it a very fun environment. Yeah. Oh, I have many inspirational scientists, and I, I my first thought was to say Rosalind Franklin, who, as you probably know, was very close to discovering the structure of DNA. And the more we find out about her work, the more we realize she was just on the cusp of announcing it. But her ideas were borrowed <laughs> by the three men who then won the Nobel Prize and got all the credit for um, uh, for their discovery of the structure of DNA. I think she's so fascinating. I read a biography about her um, by Brenda Maddox, which I highly recommend. Um, but actually, I, I want to say that as you will show someone who's living, <laughs> my inspirational living scientist is my mentor, Uta Frith, who is a psychologist who I actually did work experience with when I was at school. So just after my GCSEs when I was 15, I did a week's work experience with Uta in London. She was studying autism at the time, children with autism. And that week's work experience inspired me to study psychology at university and, well, eventually become a psychologist or a, a cognitive neuroscientist. Um, and she, Uta, is, I've worked with her for many years. We've written a book together. She's still my mentor, you know, decades later. <laughs> That's incredible. Thank you, Sarah Jane. I think it's lovely to hear about living legends as well. And she sounds like an absolute living legend uh, to you and, and I think probably to, to many other uh, scientists as well. So now we've got that easy question out <laughs> of the way. Um, well, what would you like to ask Sarah Jane? Uh, my first question would probably be, um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? Yeah, sure. So I run a lab at Cambridge. In fact, I was at UCL for many years and I moved to Cambridge about three and a half years ago, just before the pandemic. <laughs> Not very good timing. I run a lab and we research the development of the living human adolescent brain and also adolescent behavior and cognition and mental health. And we have a particular interest in the social lives and the social brains of adolescents because socially adolescents change dramatically. They change in many ways actually but if you think about adolescence it's a time where friends become particularly important and the way you think about yourself is partly molded by and shaped by what your friends think of you, um, your peer evaluations of yourself. And friends really have an influence on adolescence. You know, we think about adolescence, we think about peer influence, peer pressure, particularly in the context of risk-taking adolescents are much more likely to take risks when they're with their friends than when they're on their own. So we have a focus on that kind of area, understanding social development in adolescence, both behaviorally, how adolescents interact and think with and think about their peers, but also in their brains with a focus on the development of the social brain. Fantastic. And would you say that in that developmental period that young people are perhaps a little more susceptible to having mental health problems? Yep. So we define adolescence as the period of life between 10 and 24 years. So it's a very long developmental period. That is long. It is. And um, and in fact, I, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting because until recently, there were many different definitions of adolescence. And I'm sure if I asked you what your definition was before I just told you the definition, <laughs> you might have all come up with, with something different. People thought of it as like the teenage years or mm. the second decade of life or the period of life between puberty and becoming adult. But we now have this definition, which was suggested by a group of Australian neuroscientists a few years ago, based on the fact that the 
brain undergoes very substantial development until the mid-20s. And the, the global set of researchers who work with adolescents have kind of grasped this um, definition because it's such a simple, straightforward one. It really makes sense in terms of what we know about adolescent development. Anyway, your question was about mental health problems in adolescents. Absolutely. The vast majority of mental health problems start in adolescence before the age of 24, whether you're talking about depression or anxiety or eating disorders or even schizophrenia, psychosis. If you're going to suffer from any of those problems, you're most likely to first experience the symptoms in your at some point in your adolescence. So it's a period of real vulnerability. Wow. So we're talking this episode about our brain chemistry, but mental health is a big part of that. How would you uh, define mental health? You, you mentioned a few examples of mental health problems, but how would we, you know, what is mental health? I mean, it's quite a difficult I question. think that's such an interesting question because what, what's happened over the last 20 years is rather than saying mental illness, we never really used to say mental health 20 years ago. We used to say mental illness. Oh, people, you know, might suffer from a men mental illness. The rest of the, the healthy spectrum is kind of never mentioned. Now we've, we've turned it round and we say mental health. It's a slightly odd what, a phrase in a way because we all have mental health. We are on a, you know, our mental health changes from day to day, from month to month. If we go through a traumatic experience, you know, we, we have a level of mental health that's very variable. And some people have then susceptibility to really big problems like the ones I mentioned, depression and anxiety and psychosis and things. Then they're defined as having a mental health problem or maybe a mental illness. But defining mental health is really difficult because that we all have it. It's just the way our, our mental state, our mood, um, it's measured in lots of different ways, but it's always measured by self-report. You know, it, not, there's no kind of magic... Um, I don't know, blood test for measuring someone's mental health or even brain scan for measuring their mental health. It's all based on how, you know, asking people, how do you feel right now? And a series, a complicated series of questions about trying to get at their inner feelings and their inner emotions. We can all do that. So mental health is something that we all have <laughs> to, yeah. to varying degrees. And we talk, um, I mean, you mentioned them, but they're perhaps um, most widely talked about um, is depression and anxiety. It wouldn't be a good question to ask, you know, what causes them, but are there factors that make certain people more at risk? Um, you know, we, we talk about young people at the moment, but are there other factors? Oh, there are so many factors. And actually, you know, you, you say it's a difficult question. It is because we, you know, there are so many potential factors and we don't really know why some people are more at risk of mental health, developing mental health problem compared with others, why other people seem resilient to them. We do know that genetics play a role, but it's not only genetics. People, identical twins who have the same genes, can one can be, can be discordant for mental health problems, like one can have depression and the other one doesn't. That's, that's very normal. <laughs> um, so it's not only genetics. And there are, what, what risk factors are there in the environment? That's the kind of million dollar question. Lots of people are, are working on that. People do that research in very large scale studies, mostly epidemiological studies, where they're looking for predictive factors in people's lives that predict the onset of, say, depression or anxiety. And there are a few, there are a few pointers. So for example, there are gender differences. Being a girl, girls go, who've just gone through puberty are at much higher risk of developing some kind of emotional mood disorder like depression or anxiety than boys. So why is that? We don't know. Maybe it's hormonal, estrogen, the sex hormone that girls, that increases in girls at puberty. 
uh, is known to have effects on mood, but it could also be the social effects of going through puberty. You know, you go from looking like a small child to an adult and you're treated very differently by society and suddenly you have a lot more pressure on you. Other factors are things like uh, poverty. We know from study after study that poverty is one of the biggest risk factors of developing a mental health problem in adolescence. Early childhood adversity is also a risk factor um, that, you know, that's a very broad category. Lots of different uh, examples of early childhood adversity, but again, many studies have shown that that is a, a, a known, yeah, a known risk factor for developing a whole range of mental health problems in in your teenage years. Um, if if you're thinking about, so you asked about depression and anxiety, but if you then if you look at um psychosis, which is a or schizophrenia, it used to be called, um, is a is a uh, mental illness that's characterized by really horrible symptoms like hearing voices inside your head and being really paranoid, thinking that other people are out to get you. There, again, genetics play a very significant role, but that's not only genetic, and there are obviously environmental influences. And again, we don't really know what they are, but there are certain risk factors which increase people's risk if they have a genetic predisposition. And those things are things like smoking cannabis regularly, a lot of cannabis during your teenage years. That is not a good thing to do if you have any kind of history of psychosis in your family because it's shown in many really high-quality studies to be a risk factor to increase your risk of developing psychosis. Migrating to a uh, another place which is culturally very different from your home is a risk factor. Um, so in other words, this kind of social stress of migrating. Living in urban environment compared to living in rural environment is a risk factor for psychosis, which is something that's been discovered pretty recently. And again, many studies have shown this. Anyway, so, but they but they increase your risk by a small amount. There's no sort of, it's not as if everyone who yeah. lives in a city is going to get psychosis. It just slightly elevates your risk. Yeah, this, this is very um, absolutely interesting. And like you've kind of alluded to that there's so many different factors that kind of affect mental health, especially in the adolescence. Um, but is there a lot being done now? Like how would you say in terms of how you know, people are dealing with mental health. Have there, has there been a change over time in terms of how people are dealing with it? And is there a lot out there to help people deal with their mental health right now? Mm, those are very good questions. I mean, that it's changed massively. Like when I was, well, when I was a teenager, there were no words for these things. No one ever talked about it. Like basically in my school, no one had a mental health problem. And that's not because they didn't. It's just because there was no awareness of mental health problems back then. Now there is a very large amount of awareness. I mean, in some countries, there is still no awareness. So anyway, masses has changed in this country, in the UK, over the last 30 years. I think a lot of mental health problems have decreased in stigma. Mm. Um, perhaps not psychosis so much, but issues like depression and anxiety. Young people particularly are more comfortable talking about those problems I think, again, there's a gender difference there. Girls are more comfortable than boys on average. And the awareness amongst parents, amongst teachers, schools, policymakers has really, really increased. And actually, the rate, the prevalence of mental health problems has also really increased in the last 30 years and that, or even in the last 10 years. And that's probably partly because of the increased awareness and the decreased stigma. But it's not only that. If you talk to any clinician who works with people with mental health problems they'll tell you yes okay you know we've become more aware people look out for these problems more but also there's been a real increase in these problems and the question is why yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we were talking before um before you arrived sarah jane about where psychology meets chemistry in terms of antidepressants and the the chemistry of that um when you're in your research 
and you're as you're looking at different interventions. Are there interventions that work better with adolescents than others, or is it a combination of of resources that you were just talking to that improve or stabilize an adolescent's mental health? Yeah, again, this is a very new area, and you know, it, I think you asked um, if if we now know how to treat these things and whether there are resources out there. I mean, there there are, but there's nothing. There's no magic pill. There's no there's no panacea. That's the problem. And it's there's, as you know, also there's you know a huge mental health crisis in young people now globally. Um, we just don't have the resources to help everyone. Uh, and this country as well, the CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, are just really... They're overrun, aren't they? They are completely on their knees, yeah. actually. And and we spend a tiny, tiny fraction on, um, on, men, on, on helping people with mental health problems compared with physical health problems. You know, this is the key problem. You mentioned the chemistry of antidepressants. So the, the alternative is talking therapies. And a lot of different talking therapies, like CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy... By the way, I'm not a clinician, so I'm just telling you about things that I've heard <laughs> and read. This is really useful to us, Sarah Jane. Um, yeah, okay. Um, oh, that's my disclaimer. Um, but they uh, they can be really helpful, really helpful. The problem is they're very resource intensive. So probably if you go to the GP saying you're feeling really low and you have been for a few weeks or months, your GP is possibly more likely to prescribe you antidepressants than to get you a you know six-week or 12-week course of CBT because, because of the, the resource difference. And there's a lot of evidence that antidepressants can be really useful for some people. They can just be quite life-saving. But CBT and other talking therapies are also really useful and effective, especially if used in combination with antidepressants. Okay. Um, and and by the way, you know, when you when you are so if talking therapy works, how does it work? It works through changing something in your brain, just like antidepressants do. So, you know, there's no, there's a difference, of course, but ultimately um, you're, you're trying to achieve the same thing, a change in the brain, probably in the brain neurotransmitters. Um, and there have been studies showing that, I mean, these are quite old now and I, I don't know any recent ones, <laughs> but there have been studies show brain imaging studies, scanning the brains of adults before and after receiving antidepressants for depression or before and after receiving cognitive behavioral therapy for anti for depression and the outcomes look very similar in the brain the That's brain changes in a similar way which actually if you study the brain isn't surprising because if your brain has changed if your mind has changed and your mindset has changed then something in your brain must have changed so when someone is prescribed with um antidepressant what's kind of going on we we talked about um, how it's changing the brain, um, but what's what's going on to kind of make that happen? Um, well, most antidepressants work by um, increasing the amount of serotonin that is kind of washing around your brain. They achieve that in various ways. You might have heard of SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Effectively, that increases the amount of serotonin in the brain. What's interesting is that we, don't, we still don't really know how they work. I mean, we don't know why giving someone an SSRI can improve their mood, often does. And also it's, it's probably far more complicated than just acting on serotonin because the brain is a, a network of regions and a network of neurotransmitters. If you change one, you probably change other pathways and other neurotransmitters in the brain as well. I guess if we could scan someone's brain and say, this is what's going wrong, then we could treat it, but presumably that's just not 
not possible. No, not yet. Yeah. So everyone is, you know, people in, in this field are looking for biomarkers of um, mental health problems. You know, so like I was saying before, currently to diagnose depression, you're relying on someone's self-report. So it's a it's a not an objective science. It's very subjective. And one clinician might diagnose depression. Another one might diagnose something else like affective disorder or another clinician might diagnose nothing at all. There, you know, there is quite high reliability. It would be much cleaner if there was some kind of biological test, biomarker for these things. And, and we're, we're quite a long way off that, although a lot of people are working on that. Is that where you see research in this area going? Yeah, a lot of people are working on looking for biomarkers of mental health problems. So I think in the next say, 10, 20 years, we might see something. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I love um, kind of what you've said in terms of, you know, um, you know, mental health kind of requires genetic levels and also the environment has an influence on your mental health as well. So you spoke about um, how you can have combination ther therapy where you have antidepressants and also talking therapy. Are there things that we as individuals can do and implement in our lives to ensure that the people around us, um, their mental health is, are in check? Yeah, and that goes back to this question that you asked, what is mental health? It's like, well, we all have mental health. You don't have to be you don't have to have a mental illness to, to care about your mental health. We all have to protect, try to protect our mental health. Um, there is some evidence that things like physical exercise is good for one's mental health. And I've just cancelled my gym membership. Oh, no. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to just then say that there's my some. Ev there's also evidence that out being outdoors that's, is good. So maybe the gym. That's reassuring. Yes, <laughs> maybe the gym well, can go. But walking in outside in yeah. the fields, that, that there's some evidence that 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 there's some actual evidence that that's good for people's mental health. And I think anecdotally we'd all agree um uh so yeah and and other sleep sleep is so important for, for mental health for mood also for learning and um uh, attention but also for mood again that's there's a lot of evidence around that but also probably we all have you know been sleep deprived and you can feel the effect on your mood um uh I'm looking at uh, the phd oh. students here <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing is that in adolescence, which is what I work on, um, uh, so so one area of adolescence which I think is relevant here is a lot of people study resilience and what makes some adolescents resilient, more resilient than others. Actually, I don't really like the re word resilience because I think it's kind of overused and we don't even really know how to define it. But um, one factor that seems to make adolescents resilient to trauma, so in other words, protects them from becoming mentally ill after a trauma is high quality social relationships so high quality friendships and also high quality family relationships as well and th those are things that you know can be worked on they're not like genetics you know you can't change your genetics very easily <laughs> um but you can't schools can focus on social relationships family relationships you mentioned briefly about those social relationships how does social media play into that because we often hear the negative side of social media as well as the you know the positive side um where does that kind of balance um hold when it when it comes to relationships okay social media is a very interesting issue um so we were talking earlier about how the rates of depression for example have increased a lot over the last 10 15 years uh in the UK in the US in most countries in young people and at the same time, um, social media use and smartphones have increased. You know, if you if you look at the, 
the graphs, <laughs> the increase, they're almost exactly the same. So in other words, there's there's a very high correlation between social media use and rates of depression in young people. But the question is, is it causal? Because it's correlation. But mm. it's, so, so a lot of people are like, oh my God, that's it. You know, that's the thing that's changed in the last 10 or 15 years. It must be social media. But is it causal? And if it is causal, which direction is it? Does social media cause depression? Or if you're feeling low, do you turn to social media more because you're not going out as much? And actually, there's evidence for both. But the first thing to say is that the field is very, very young. And there's not a lot of really good high quality studies on this. The studies that do exist suggest that there's a small relationship between social media use and well-being or mental health, whatever you want to call it, and that it's bi-directional. So those two, it's not always that social media causes depression. The other way around can be true as well. But the re- but the the relationship is small. It's not a hugely strong relationship. The field is new and it's not, it's a bit of a mess at the moment, but people are starting to design really good high quality studies, which over the next 10 or so years, you know, will will reveal a lot. One study that I did recently with my colleague, Amy Auburn, who's a world leader in this area, she's at Cambridge, looked at the relationship between social media use in one year, whether it predicts a decrease in well-being the following year. So that was not just a correlation, it was a kind of prediction in the same individuals. And this, by the way, is a study with 17,000 people in the UK who were tested every year over their adolescent period from 10 to 21. So this is, you know, a really high quality data set. Um, And what what this data set showed was that most of the time between 10 and 21, there was no relationship between using social media a lot in one year and your well-being in the next year. The exceptions were at age 11 to 13 in girls and age 14 to 15 in boys, okay? And again, at age 19 in both sexes and what we think is going on there this is very speculative is and in uh, those those um those are kind of risky ages mm. where um social media in one year predicted significant drop in well-being the following year and what we think is happening is that the first age bracket where there's that risk uh, is uh, roughly corresponds to puberty puberty happens a couple of years earlier in girls than boys now puberty i mentioned this earlier on is a very, very big stage of transition where your hormones change, your brain changes, but also your body changes. You're treated differently by society, by those around you. You also think of yourself differently. It's a really stressful period. And you might turn to your phone a bit more because you need to create new social networks and you need, you're need you more interested in what's going on out there socially. And that can have a detrimental effect for some people. So that might be one thing. Again, it's totally speculative. We have no evidence that it's puberty. It's just that the ages align so well with puberty. And then the second age where there's a sort of risky relationship between those two things is 19. And that's when most people in the UK are living independently for the first time. And again, that brings that with it... That is true. That yeah. brings with it new stresses where you have to affiliate with... You know, you have to work, have a new peer network, work out where you are in the social hierarchy... Uh, affiliate with new people it's quite stressful socially you might turn to your phone more to you know affiliate with new social networks on your via your smartphone and that can be not a good thing for some people and what i think probably just to sort of tap into your brain excuse the pun uh, <laughs> a little bit more sarah jane what makes you hopeful in your research because it sounds like you're you're really pushing the field forward and and bringing challenge and innovation what are the things that make you hopeful? Um, well, if I'm thinking about what, you know, another way of putting that is the other side of the coin. 
is what are the kind of challenges in the research that might change over the next 10 or 20 years? In other words, what yeah, might be that's a good. That's a good way <laughs> to put it. And one is that, so we use brain imaging like MRI and a functional MRI to look at the structure and the function of the living human brain. That has an inherent resolution limit. And currently you can only look at the brain at a kind of macro level. You can only really look at it at the level of kind of white matter and grey matter uh, you, it doesn't have the resolution to tell us much at all at the moment about the brain at the level of the cell, the neuron or the synapses. But I think that that, so we're at a kind of bit of an impasse in, in, term, in our research on adolescent brain development because we've learned absolutely loads in the last 20 years about how the adolescent brain changes at a macro level, at a broad level. We now need to find out what's underlying those changes in grey matter and white matter. Grey matter and white matter change massively during adolescence but why what cellular and molecular processes underlie those changes that we don't really know yet but i think again the technology is moving so fast that in 10 or 20 years we might have a much better picture of the microstructural development of the adolescent brain that's incredible that's remarkable very exciting I think this has been an incredible conversation. I feel Absolutely. that my brain is actually expanding <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just listening to Sarah Jane. We're going to start to bring it to a conclusion because we're going to ask Sarah Jane as the expert to uh to, to give us a bit of challenge. So, Sarah Jane, this is the moment in the podcast where we ask you to summarise, I mean, this incredible conversation we've been having. In about a minute or so, we are going to be listening, we're going to be trying to take it all in, because after that, we're going to go to the expert test. That is when you have the opportunity to ask us three or four questions um, I'm not saying we're competitive, Sarah Jane, but we kind of are. Um, we keep a score every episode to see how much we can retain um, as podcasters. And um, we hope it allows us to also, you know, really just reflect back some of the fantastic conversation that we've been having. So, Sarah Jane, over to you. Okay, so one minute summary. Adolescence, which is defined as the period of life between 10 and 24 is characterized by huge changes in hormones, in uh, cognition, in uh, psychology, in the brain and the body. Um, the brain undergoes very big changes in terms of its structure and its function. And we think about adolescence as a period of heightened neuroplasticity. That is the way the brain adapts according to the environment that the adolescent is growing up in. And that renders adolescence a period of both vulnerability to things like mental health problems, but also opportunity to learning and creativity. Absolutely amazing. Fantastic. I think you nailed it, Sarah Jane. <laughs> now it's our turn to be put on the spot. Drum roll, please. Sarah Jane, do you have three or four questions for us? Yeah, sure. And Will? <laughs> Would you mind keeping the score? Thank you very much. What is the definition of adolescence that I use? First so, to the mic, so. Uh, well, age between um, 10 and 24. Yep. How do we study the brain in living human adolescence? Ooh, mine. MRI scans. Yep. He's not letting me get into the mic. <laughs> I told you I'm on it today. This <laughs> is my field. It is your field. <laughs> I That's mentioned true. three... Uh, mental health problems that tend to first appear in adolescence. Do you remember what they were? I actually mentioned four, but you can get get away depression. with depression. Yeah, 
psychosis. Yeah. I'm tempted to say anxiety, but I feel yeah. that that would be... Oh, yeah. is that one of them? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually, anxiety often does develop earlier than adolescence. Oh, really? But there's also a lot okay. of new cases in adolescence, too. I guess anxiety and depression, I don't know. People always use they, it yeah. linked together. So. Yeah, they are often yeah. co-occurring, but yeah. they are different. Okay. I don't know the fourth. Yeah, I actually don't know the fourth. Oh, I'm eating disorders. Oh, eating, yes, okay. of course. I mentioned two treatments for depression. What were they? Oh, so um, antidepressants and talking therapy. Yeah. Yeah. And then I've got one more question. Do you remember any of the risk factors that I mentioned for psychosis, environmental risk factors? Urban, living in an urban setting, yeah. genetics. Yeah. Social environment, so immigration. Mm -hmm. One more. Did we say adverse childhood experiences? That is one, but I didn't actually mention that together with psychosis. The one that I'm thinking of is cannabis. Oh, oh clearly we were zoned out <laughs> in that section of Sarah Jane's fabulous conversation. I think I won that round. <laughs> I'm going to give you both a uh, point for that last. Oh, <laughs> you both gave an answer. So. Well, it's the moment of truth. Who won the expert test this week? Uh, well, it was Sam with four points, but Mariama did get two. And considering <gasps> Sam's doing a PhD in, the oh, sun, in a subject related, you know, I'm... I'm yeah, I'm it's just not fair. I look at it on the protein level. <laughs> <laughs> Quite different. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to give you this one, Sam. Yes. I'm feeling generous. We've had a great conversation with Sarah Jane. I'll let you win the expert test this week. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah Jane, uh, for all that you shared it's so exciting to know that you are working at the cutting edge of this field and that you are in Cambridge working with colleagues and your research group to really advance what we know about the adolescent brain and mental health and it's research that we certainly I feel and we feel that it's going to have direct impact on people's lives so thank you for sharing that with us we've been really inspired by you yeah. being here and by our conversation and to Will for being a fair schoolkeeper <laughs> and asking some fabulous questions of our expert uh, Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore this week thank you Thanks, thank you well. and thank you to you our listeners for joining us on this our first episode of Zwittering On and if you want to learn more about our work you can follow us on our socials or go to our website saltersinstitute.org <laughs> 